Good evening, and welcome to the February 4th edition of Worldview here on WRT 89.9 FM in Madison. I'm Gil Halstead, and joining me tonight from the Madison Sister City Architau Project, I am joined by Joan Lorian and Martin Alvarado. Thanks so much for joining us. And I'm wearing two hats today. I've been a longtime supporter of MASCP yes, and I also work for the Public Library, which is... Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah, I, I was actually connecting you to WRT, which I didn't mention. Okay. Which, yeah, yeah, a, a that vo- too. A, a voice that you have heard <laughs> here on WRT, uh, playing a wonderful world music show that um, that airs regularly here on WRT. Anyway, thanks. Welcome to both of you. And we want to talk tonight over the next uh, 25 or 26 minutes about projects that uh, the Madison Architau Sister City Project is involved in. And the first one we want to talk about uh, is this new oral history project. And that's the connection to the uh, to the library, to Madison Public Library, where Martine works. Yeah, right? certainly. So this has been a project that's been going on for a few years pre-pandemic, where it was first an effort of doing placemaking and looking at historical Madison neighborhoods. And then during the pandemic, it became a way of documenting what was happening during the pandemic. And then after that, it, the idea for the team that I work with, my colleague Neity, myself, and a lot of other good creative people, came up with the idea of having the community pitch the stories and having uh, two or three groups of people or individuals who wanted to engage with some aspect of Madison history, with the community, with a story, so to speak. And that story, the, the story that we're going to talk about tonight, has to do with actually two things that are both connected to El Salvador in, in some way or another, and to Central America in general, El Salvador and Guatemala, is the Madison Sister City Architau Project and the Sanctuary Movement that was both of those that were that grew out of things that were happening in the 1980s in Central America and the impact that, uh, that they had here. And so... I wanted to start with the sanctuary. I haven't listened to all of the interviews, I'll have to be honest, but I've listened to some of them. And I wanted to start with a clip that we won't have time to talk about the whole story of Antonio Portillo, but perhaps we can capsulize it somehow. And this is a a clip from the interview that Joan did very recently with Antonio. And I understand he, he was in Guatemala at the time that you talked to him? No, no. Oh, he, yes, he was. You're I think right. he was. Yes, yes actually. Mm-hmm. But he lives in Canada. Right. He lives in uh, Winnipeg. No. Winnipeg. Yes. Mm-hmm. But he happened to be in Guatemala, which yes. was very appropriate. And so here's just a little clip, and we'll try to put it in context. This is Antonio Partillo talking with Joan Lorian about what led up to his journey from Guatemala to. Madison, where he was hosted by the sanctuary movement. So let's play that clip now. And until one day I was working and, and I stopped at a cafeteria for a drink and lunch. And this former classmate of mine came over and sat down and, hey, how are you? You know, the, the chit chat. And all of a sudden he, is, he, he's, he asked, was your father, was Carlos, my brother, who happened to have died in, in combat? Uh, and he said he's, you know, and I'm I'm giving him the cover story. Oh, my father is in Mexico, my brother is in Panama, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, he gets mad. He says, "You know, stop the crap. We know who you are. You're all communists. You're all gonna die. I'll give you, I'll give you five minutes to get out of my sight." Pulled out the gun and cocked it, and I didn't take five minutes. I left immediately, and I told my wife, "We're leaving." 
tomorrow morning, first bus out of the city, had 29 quetzales in, 39 quetzales in my pocket at the time, was 250 quetzales for $1. That's all we had. Three kids, she was pregnant in her ninth month. So we made it to Tapachula, and next morning we took a bus and headed for Mexico City, and then we got to Matamoros, and then we got to San Benito, Texas, and then we got to... Uh, Dallas, Fort Worth, and then to Madison. Long, long trip. Joan, I, I don't know. There's so much involved in this story, but I, we've got up to where he got to Madison. I don't know that we can really go into the, all the details about what led him to, to leave, but if you think you can capsulize it a, a little bit about what was going on in Guatemala at the time that drove him, um, Antonio Portillo, to leave and eventually come to Madison where he was protected and um, spent quite a bit of time here, more, more than a year and a half, I think. Yeah, about a year and a half. Right, mm -hmm. before he eventually was able to emigrate to Canada. Right. Um, I, can, I can't tell you the whole history no, no, right now, but um, the reason, another reason he left was because he, was, uh, he saw his father and family be taken away and um, never saw them again. They were coming to a party, and he was, you know, a little ways away and saw everybody being taken away by the armed forces and disappeared. And um, one thing he said was that anybody who was working for any kind of justice or any kind of democracy or social welfare of the people was labeled a communist and was put to death. So that was why this other person said to him, you're a communist, you are going to die. And this guy was actually a classmate of yeah, his, who he'd his. known, mm -hmm. and just indicating the division of things that were going on in the country there, and pe people were choosing sides. And, and let me just tell you, Gil, that the reason that this sanctuary story is in this yes. story about how Madison became sistered with Arcatau is because in order to for the Common Council to officially call Arcatau and name Arcatau as our sister city, we needed a lot of public education and a lot of, of people rising up and saying, we want this to happen and we're willing to raise money and we're willing to be witnesses, we're willing to go there during wartime. And this sanctuary, uh, Anthony, who you just heard the clip of, he was an extremely brave young man. He was in public sanctuary, which meant that he was willing to talk to people about his situation, even though he was here illegally, and everybody that was helping him was illegal. But he has, in our, um, our project on the library site, we have a document that's four pages long that isn't even complete about all the different public presentations he did in homes, in classes, everywhere around Madison. And this was one of the, one of the ways that Madison got motivated and mobilized in order for a couple years later, us to name Arcatau as our sister city. Right, and actually, I believe that Antonio had Salvadoran connections in that his father was originally his, from El Salvador. Right, his father actually fled El Salvador during the 1930s because of the repression and went to Guatemala. And so Antonio was raised in Guatemala, but his wife was Salvadoran. So they were a mix of this repressive authoritarian government. And this was, uh, this was all going on in the 1980s, Correct. right, in the early 1980s. Correct. And so 
uh, I've looked at the archive. I really encourage people to go there. Maybe uh, to go check it out. Maybe we could just give the website right now before I move on to. Um, Certainly, it's uh, MadisonLivingHistory.org, and you can click on the Madison Architecture Sister City Project. It's one of the buttons on the front page, and, and really explore these stories. There's also a lot of archival documents and pictures. Right, there's pictures right of Antonio Portillo's family, as well as a lot of other stuff. Right, right, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, it's a wonderful archive, and I really encourage people to check it out. Mm-hmm. And so, moving on to talking about um, the origins of the Madison sistering project with Arkatau, I want to play a clip from Billy Feitlinger, who in the 80s was a city council member, mm-hmm. I believe. Mm-hmm. And he's the clip opens, I believe, with you. Yes, the clip opens with Joan asking, talking to him about the resolution mm-hmm. that was passed. I'm not sure what the year was, but it was in, 19, in 1986. And uh, Billy talking about and responding to you about his role in getting the resolution passed that established the sister city. Mm-hmm. Whereas the assault on non-combatants has received scant attention in the U.S. media as of late, and whereas the United States government is intimately involved in the conflict in El Salvador and our tax dollars are funding the war there. So... It would have been really easy to not even put those whereases in, but you all decided to do it, and that was a very brave decision to just kind of. I, at that time, I didn't see it as a brave decision. I thought it was a, a moral imperative that we wanted. Part of the purpose of the resolution, you know, it's not it's not going to make a gigantic difference, but, but hopefully, it made a little difference in the greater Madison area. The public awareness that our government, that my name is a part of, um, and our, all of our names are a part of as taxpayers and as elected officials, that I wanted to make sure that as many people as I could convey that to the public awareness, that this was um, a very bad thing that the American government was intervening with money and military, it's a country and a a people that we should not have had anything to do with. In fact, we had our own local um, trainings in in our country, like in Georgia, where the, it was, or called that, but it was called the School of Americas. The training of our, uh, using our military to train uh, the military a government that was running a a dictatorship and basically hurting the people of El Salvador and in in particular the peasants that were pushing back uh, against their government or supposedly their government with the help intervention of our government. And I wanted to make sure that if a little way that we as a community through the Common Council can make people more aware of this bad intervention and, and and basically pushing back on imperialism that we had done exactly the same thing throughout the world in different parts of our history, including times that I first got involved in politics, which was against the war in Southeast Asia back in the 60s. So that was Billy Feitlinger, who was a city council member back in, the, in 1986 uh, when the, when the resolution to establish the sister city relationship between 
Arcatao and El Salvador and Madison passed, and uh, it's been 37 years now. 38. 38 years now. <laughs> do my math. And uh, that relationship has grown and blossomed in lots of ways. I mean, th there's been a, obviously because of the, the pandemic and, and other things, but probably mainly a pan pandemic over the last several years, the, the ability to, for Madison residents and members of the Sister City Project to go back to go and visit or vice versa has been mm -hmm. hampered, but it started again, right? Wasn't it last year for yep. the first time? Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. And yeah, we had a reunion trip last year, and now we're going again this year in June, uh, June 9th through 16th. And um, we're having another reunion slash informational meeting on uh, February 17th. It's a Saturday. And we meet just really informal at this wonderful Salvadoran cafe on uh, 2500 Rimrock Road. It's called the Finca Cafe. And you can get really authentic Salvadoran pupusas and quesadillas and just great food. And they only serve Salvadoran coffee. So anybody who wants to come, past travelers or people who are interested in MRSCP and particularly people who might want to visit with us this year, we're going for a week. So you're going for a week in June. Mm -hmm. and. But this reference to going to the restaurant, the coffee shop, thats there's a date for that as well? Yeah, February 17th. February 17th. And then there's one in March too, March 16th. And they're all informational, right. very informal. You don't have to commit. But if you've, got, if you've got interest and you've got questions, you want to meet me, I'm going to be the leader. Um, we, you're very welcome to come. Well, say a little bit about what it was like when you went down last year and what folks might expect. I mean, they should come to the um, to one of these orientation meetings or, or one of these events to learn even more about it in person from you, Joan. But what about a little, little bit about we, we talked on the air about uh, the trip. I think it was before you went, though. Last year. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. And yeah. How, how that turned out. Oh, well, <laughs> it's always great because these are old friends now, as you might expect. And so we <clears throat> we always get a an update of how things are going, which, as anybody who's reading the newspaper knows, well, not reading the newspaper, but anyway, <laughs> anybody who's checking about what's happening in Central America, um, things are a little bit tough for democracy in El Salvador right now. In fact, very tough for democracy in El Salvador right now, including today, which was the election. Was today the election? Yes, okay, sir. I know it was this week, but no, okay. No, it's today. Okay. Today, and now the voting is over, and counting has started in El Salvador. But anyway, as far as the the trip last year, we um, got to see some of the projects that we had helped funded over the pandemic years that we hadn't seen yet, which um, every year they give us a project that they they tell us about a project they'd like to work on and we fundraise for that project. And so that was great to see a couple of those projects that have come to fruition over time. Yeah, and it's just it's just always amazing the the fortitude and the stick to itiveness of these folks. I mean, I could go on and on about the kinds of things that they accomplish. Well, in terms of what's uh Facing them right now in terms of the challenge of democracy, we could talk a little bit about the election right now. I've been trying to uh, keep up a little bit about what's happened there, but I'm curious about the direct impact on on Arcatau or perhaps villages like them, because the, the, the election, um, from what I've read, sounds like it's moving likely towards the re-election of the current um, president, who was not from either of the major parties mm -hmm. down there. Mm -hmm. um, 
but appears to have uh, won support uh, mainly by his promises and then following through in some ways to to impose really strict security and uh, basically emasculate or kind of get rid of the gangs. Mm-hmm. That's yes. been the main focus has been on absolutely. getting rid of gangs. On, on security, absolutely. And in some ways, the people's lives have dramatically changed because of it. 75,000 people were put into jail within two years, which is 2% of the adult population in, in El Salvador. And um, it's in the lar- they built the largest we believe is the largest prison probably in the world where these people are housed. And, um, but now there's basically no gang activity, no murders, no extortion, and people are able to move about freely um, and carry on their lives like they haven't been able to do for a very long time. So that's why over 80% of the population is now supporting uh, Bukele and pro- why he will probably, he will be reelected. Right, but I mean, in this crackdown it seems likely to me in terms of this roundup of of uh, alleged gang members must have swept up a lot of people that may be, may exactly. be completely innocent. Oh, a lot of people who were completely innocent. And that's where we know some folks in Arcatau, where even in Arcatau, which is far away from any urban center and uh, has no gang activity, where they actually have quotas and they just go around and the army is there. When we were there last year, we saw them. Um, it's like having the United States Army in Madison hanging around watching and occasionally going into people's houses, which is what they're doing in Arcatau. And then they'll pick up a young man. It's always young men. And they'll keep them for a while or keep them for a this, longer, a, longer yeah. a year or two, and nobody knows where he is. And I think also very worryingly, it's almost about 10% of the people, even that the Salvadoran government will admit are not connected to any activity. Mm-hmm. And that's about six to 7,000 people who are per- held without charges. But I think one of the really perverse things about this is that the whole legal system has been changed to accommodate these sort of uh, things, sort of being able to have trials where you judge 900 people at a time really and there's really no that's the whole legal framework it's just frightening to see how mm-hmm. this apparent well like these conditions of improved security are coming at a tremendous cost and at a really authoritarian way of of conducting um well we've had uh, the president send in the army into the legislature just to intimidate by sending oh yes a bunch of armed people Mm -hmm. we also have had uh the summary judgments of 900 people or not summary but 900 people at a time and also the criminalization of protests so people were opposing extractive Mm -hmm. protecting water yeah i wanted Uh, to touch on that that statute was also or the whole like legal package and the whole like impunity of power has just really had also he he imposed martial law and it's been in in place for two years and it's by the constitution it's only supposed to be in place for a month but every month they re-up it and it's been two years now so that's why nobody nobody has any judgments their people in jail have no legal help because of the martial law and so i mean it sounds to me from the little that i know about what's going on in in other parts of the world that it's kind of like the model of what Duterte did in the Philippines in terms of using the 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 gangs and drug trade and uh, crime that was going on surrounding that to just impose kind of a martial law and go out and round people up and even kill people I mean 
in relation to that, is that kind of thing happening? Uh, are there actually extrajudicial killings of gang members going on in El Salvador? Or is it mainly rounding them up and taking them to prison? I think it's mainly the first, but yeah. um, I just recently read an article about extrajudicial killings by police officers. Right. Yeah. So, um, but, you know, we say all this and we understand it, and it seems like democracy is going down the tubes here, but still. 80 to 90 percent of the population yeah. is supporting him another aspect of this is the is bukele is a um marketer that's his profession right. and he so he's built a, a cult of personality he's a young man he's good looking he wears his hat backwards he's just mr cool you know and um people are buying it but again yeah they they are experiencing a kind of peace and security that they haven't had in a very long time. On Worldview, we're talking with Joan Lorian from the Madison Sister City Project in Acatel, El Salvador, and Martina, Martina Alvarado is here as well, who is a voice that's heard often on WRT, and here mainly in connection with this because of his work on a oral history project uh, through the Madison Public Library that uh, has a lot of wonderful information about the origins and history of the Madison Sister City Architectural Project and the sanctuary uh, movement uh, that began in the 1980s. And so I, I wanted to shift back to Architectural itself, uh, other than, since it seems to me the main thing that is facing them now uh, is the securities and political situation there. But but what about the, the impact of this government on how they are able to manage just their daily life in, in terms of the natural resources that they need, water and... Water is actually the theme of our delegation this year, of our trip. Um, we're going to be visiting another of the U.S. El Salvador sister cities, sister city, which is in Las Anonas. It's in the southern part of El Salvador where they grow um, sugarcane. So we'll be learning about the production of sugarcane and what that has to do in the water quality and environmental degradation in that area. And then we'll follow up with other water issues in Arcatau. Another thing that this government is doing is trying to privatize water throughout the country. And Arcatau, the people in Arcatau, would like to keep control of their water. And so right now, it seems like the reports we're getting is that they're doing all they can and moving through all the regulations in order to keep control of their water and the water distribution in their in their little city. But they're doing that with the hopes of not having it privatized and have it be costing them. Right. So privatization would mean that, uh, I guess, through the current government, uh, some company, private company, right. would get a contract to manage the water and would then sell it to the people. Exactly. Or and divert it, I think, to other industries that right. might sell it to other people. Yeah. Right. Correct. Mm -hmm. But Arcatau now, at least currently, manages it. And it's like a municipal water. Mm -hmm. Right. And um, uh, not too long ago, they organized themselves to get running water to every t every uh, every person's house. Wow. And so they literally decided which family would work when, and then that family would dig a trench down the street, and they'd lay pipe until they got to the next person's house, and then that person would have running water, which they succeeded to do, and every house in Arcatau has, has running water. Right. And this was done by, what is it, like a local council or yeah, local government? Yeah, the Junta Directiva, it's called, and they make this, it's called an organized community because 
during the war, they had to be so organized to run the whole war and the whole guerrilla forces that they brought those talents and skills they had of organization, brought it back, and they are an organized community. And so they, they take all these jobs and just organize themselves to get them done. Well, we just got three or four minutes left here. Actually, it looks like I have 30 seconds left. I was told I have to finish. <laughs> so let's, in these last 30 seconds, just remind people about the, the where they can find the information about the Oral History Project, Martine. MadisonLivingHistory.org, and yes. you can find many other stories there. Right. And for learning more about the trip to the yes. sister city we'll uh, in June. See, we'll see you at Finca Cafe on February 17th, 10 to noon. All right. Thank you, Gil. Joan Lorian and Martina Alvarado, thanks so much for joining us tonight. It's wonderful the work you're doing. Thank you, Gil. Thanks Thank for you. Host, having us. And that's Worldview for this week. Thank you so much to Joan Lorian and Martina Alvarado for coming in and for joining us and for all their work. And you can find more information about the project and the trip to El Salvador on the Madison Arcatau Sister City website, www.mascp.org.